Welcome to the Bullshit Filter, episode 123, special edition, because uh, Ray has been replaced with a uh, smarter, better-looking version of Ray, uh, my my other Ray, Tony Kynaston. Welcome Not to the true, bullshit. Ray. Welcome to the Bullshit Filter, Tony. <laughs> Thank you, Cam. Thanks for the invite. I I feel special. Uh, you invited you, you you invited yourself, I think. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> we had a lot, we had a lot of people offer to come on, and I appreciate everyone's offers. But I did say condition was you had to watch the Putin interview. No one else uh, seemed to be up for that. Tony goes, yeah, I can do that. So <laughs> he made and the that, cut, and that was a high price to pay too. By the way, was it? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I didn't mind listening to Putin, but Tucker Carlson. Didn't <laughs> Well, the the upside is he didn't didn't have much to say in the two yeah, hours. It was a, I think a, a journalist would call that a softball interview. Well, they've called it much much worse than that. <laughs> but look, and and here's you know there's there's a couple of reasons for me being interested in this. Uh, number one, yeah, you know, uh, Putin's obviously a, a major player in global geopolitics right now, and. We don't get to actually hear from him very often in the West. Uh, and this is the first interview that an American journalist has got with him in over two years since the this latest phase of the war uh, began, the invasion began. Um, secondly, uh, you know, I think he's uh, he's an interesting character. You, you know, you, you don't run Russia for... 25 years or whatever it's been now um, without having something going on. He's a smart, canny player, brutal probably. And thirdly, and this is, I guess, the main focus I want to give, is just the level of outrage in the Western media about the interview itself even existing, about Carlson doing the interview and uh, and the outrage about the things that Putin allegedly said, which he didn't actually say, I think, in the interview. So I want to cover the media coverage of it. I mean, that's kind of what the bullshit filter originally was about, was looking at media coverage of big stories in the West and picking them apart to see if they're providing a fair and reasonable uh coverage of the stories or if it's bullshit. And I've read a lot of news stories about this and and by and large, uh, I'm calling bullshit on a lot of it. Anyway, let's start with the interview, Tony. Um, I mean, I, you and I, I don't think, have talked a great deal about uh, Putin or Russia or Ukraine. Do you want to give me your high-level view on what's been going on over there for the last 10 years? I'm not sure I can or I'm qualified. <clears throat> you you probably know that far better than I no, do. No one on this show is ever qualified. To yeah. Anything, <laughs> <laughs> well, you you, interesting you said 10 years. I assume you're referring back to the last time the government changed <clears throat> when um, uh, Russia annexed Crimea and then there was a bit of a coup around that time as well. Is that what you're talking about? Is that why you said 10 years? 
Well, uh, yeah, so Putin's view, and, and I tend to agree with him, is that in 2014 in Ukraine, there was a coup. It was a US-supported, uh, if not mm-hmm. engineered, coup. There was an earlier coup. It was a 2004 coup. Mm. Then there was the 2014 coup, uh, both led slash supported slash engineered, we believe, by the I believe, by the United States. To what degree, it's hard to say, but there seems to be sufficient evidence to say that they were involved to some degree. Um, but, you know, it's the last 10 years is really when the Donbass situation became a mm. thing, the Crimea became a thing, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, I found it really hard to to get to the truth, I guess, on the Donbass thing. <clears throat> I remember um, when the uh, – probably prior to the Ukraine war um, starting, I, I did – hear some interviews, I think it was on the BBC World Service, with uh, which alleged that there was a flood of Russian-speaking, um, Russian-affiliated Ukrainians crossing the border back into Russia, and that that was because of alleged persecution from neo-Nazis in Ukraine on that sort of border region. And therefore, that was the justification for Putin having to take action. So... Um, I tried to look up those articles in preparation for this and I couldn't find them. So I can't really talk about it in depth. But but it's to me it's really hard to to drill down and find out exactly what's going on. Mm. Um uh, it, it's been hard, as it always is, and I guess in a wartime situation, it's been hard to get even accurate information about what's going on in Ukraine during the war. And I've probably relied a bit more on Al Jazeera mm-hmm. uh, for news on that rather than the Western media. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Al Jazeera does have its problems too, but at least it was reporting issues like that pretty fairly. And it was actually quite riveting the way they were reporting. They were on the ground in the early days reporting as as suburb by suburb, the Russians started to get close to, to Kiev and then get into Kiev um, and what was going on there. So that was, that was far better than the Western journalism. Um, and it was far more independent. So... Uh, Listening to the Putin interview, I think it was really interesting when he started to talk about his point of view on things like uh, the the visit of Zelensky to the Canadian Parliament when the Speaker in the Canadian Parliament uh, praised a, a war hero who turned out to be a, um, a Nazi or a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a Nazi, I think, actually. And then the Speaker had to resign. So that didn't get... That was the first time I'd heard of that. That didn't get much coverage over here at all. So... Mm. There is obviously two sides to every story, and I think you know it's a show like this which is good to pull it apart because, you know, as as you know, it's um, the media is one of the institutions that manipulates us and our points of view and our, our lifestyles, and definitely in the West that can be shaped by just straight capitalism and <clears throat> who uh, who is paying for what ads in the media and and who what kind of agendas are they pushing and what kind of uh, you know political uh, persuasions are they pushing, and or do they have allegiances to, or do they control? So, it's a it's a big issue. Mm. It is, and it it you know I guess part of the reason for me being interested in doing this show is at, you know the historian side of me knows how regularly Western populations have been lied to historically during wars. Uh, going back to World War One, all the way through to you know Vietnam um, and the, the Gulf Wars, and 
you know, there seems to be this fascinating cycle where we go through a war, we go through a conflict that we're either directly involved in or indirectly involved in, and the government of the day and the media of the day uh, spin a whole bunch of propaganda about it. We find out years later that they lied or spun or manipulated or there was no evidence for WMD and, you know, the attacks on this ship or that ship weren't really attacks. Of Ill that, yeah. yeah. And and the media says, Mia culpa, we'll never do that again. <laughs> and, and the people tend to say, Waha, now we understand that we will never be lied to again. And then the cycle just repeats. We, you know, within a decade, there's another incident, and the media jump on board, the governments jump on board, and the people just go along for the ride and believe everything again. And inevitably, oh. a few years later, they'll go, Oh no, we were lied to. Oh, never again. You know. Well, you raised some great points, Cam, and they're pertinent to this topic as well. And you know, it's interesting, I think, that there is no crime of misrepresentation in journalism. Even though journalists will always say we need to get to the facts and we want to um, report them objectively and we need two sources and we need hard evidence, <clears throat> if none of those things happen, they get off scot-free. And in fact, if they don't happen, their readership may actually go up. So that's that's the first thing to, to address what you've said. But the second thing about <clears throat> what you're saying as well is, that particularly in this case, there's an awful lot of money involved. Um, you know, Congress is stalled now on a multi-billion dollar aid package to Ukraine. And as as we both know, <clears throat> that, that aid probably won't ever reach Ukraine. It will be given to American companies providing arms to uh, Ukraine, which is which is fine in terms of helping Ukraine uh, fight off the Russians, but it's it you know, leads you to think, well, who's behind that? Or who benefits from that? Mm-hmm. And it's the arms dealers in the in the US, the armaments manufacturers in the US that that, that benefit from it. So they're always spoiling for a fight because mm. it, it's a good way to increase sales. So, mm. um, yeah, the, the last 10 years, has it, has it been a swing to the Western Ukraine and has it been natural that Ukraine has therefore felt um, more antagonistic or antagonised by Russia? And has that been fueled by the military-industrial complex in the US who are saying, well, you know, we, we kind of like it that there could be an antagonism on this border. Mm. It may actually work out for us. Mm. Yeah, it's my my basic thesis after you know, decades of, of reading up and studying wars uh, is that the there there are certain interests in Western countries who love a good war because it's economically profitable. And it's not just the, the weapons manufacturers, it's the media, because big conflicts drive yeah. newspaper sales, television viewership, radio listeners, which means you can sell more ads. Uh, and there are cross-related, obvious, uh, uh, often ownership issues between the owners of big media companies and the owners of weapons manufacturers. and But it's also, as we've, we've talked about on the Cold War show, uh, many, many times, and on this show, when there have been studies done on this in the US primarily, and who benefits from the industrial military complex over there, it's not just weapon manufacturers, it's businesses right. of all shapes and sizes, because particularly US, America's 800 odd military bases around the world need socks and condoms and food and mm. computers paper and clips. software, paperclips, right? And yeah. so every 
Congress person, every senator in the US has people in their district who run businesses who have Pentagon contracts, and it's a big chunk of their revenue. And it's easy money once you have that contract. It's not competitive. They're not like uh, running a, a tender every year for this. If you've got it, you've got it. Quite often, there's there's a sense of urgency. Oh, we just need the stuff. Yeah. We've got to get it now. Correct. It's urgent. Yeah. We need it quick. It's a rush quick. job. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's good for business. Anyway, back to the coverage. So most of the coverage that I've read, and obviously I haven't read everything, but I try and get a smattering of, you know, I, I read the BBC and the New York Times and the Guardian and the ABC here in Australia and CBC in Canada and try and get a coverage of what the, the major media outlets are saying about this. It's a combination, I think, of lies, outright lies and distortion of what Putin said, and a lot of it is just attacking Carlson, both for giving Putin airtime in the first place or for his weak interviewing skills. To me, the only real crime Carlson committed is having a very punchable face. Uh, He's... (laughs) He's just one of those guys that just right. Chrissy walked through the the living room a couple of times and was watching. She's going, "Oh my god, I just want to punch him in the face." <laughs> yeah, he's a smug white man, isn't he? He is. Look, he is. Uh, like, I mean, you've got to be a pretty horrible person for the Murdochs to get rid of you. He, you know, when he got fired from Fox last year, he was the most viewed cable network host. Not only in Fox, but in the United States, and they got rid of him when they were in the Dominion of voting systems lawsuit, and a whole bunch of his texts and emails were going to become released as evidence. And you know, it was just evident that he was a racist, vile piece of shit, and it was probably going to cost them. Uh, and you know, he was up on harassment uh, accusations from employees and. It had come out that while they were pushing Trump in the last election, behind the scenes he was saying that he hated Trump and Trump was awful (laughs) and he hoped Trump loses so they wouldn't have to talk about him anymore. I don't know if that's in the plus or the minus column for him. But, you know, (laughs) he was saying that internally but publicly – praising Trump, you know, so obviously – and pushing the the voter fraud argument for Trump. That's why he was – so pivotal in that Dominion settlement. Yeah. It's an interesting book by Michael Wolf, if anyone wants to read it, to go through that whole process and how they thought in um, offering up Carlson's resignation, it might help lower the settlement, but it didn't. Of course, they paid a record settlement to um, <clears throat> to Dominion to drop the case. So I'm in no way, shape or form a fan of Tucker Carlson or uh, uh, trying to apologize for Tucker Carlson, but... I, I think the the amount of coverage that's given in these stories to Carlson instead of coverage of what Putin actually mm. said is disproportionate. Right. They don't actually, when they do talk about Putin, they don't tend to address his actual claims. One of the exceptions, by the way, is Al Jazeera. Like the Al Jazeera mm. coverage is t- typically very dry and factual. Here are the five major points that Putin made in the interview kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? So Ooh. I agree with you. Al Jazeera increasingly is the place where I go to if I want to actually find out what's going on or what was said. Um, they don't talk about Putin's actual claims, you know, about NATO enlargement, about the CIA blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines, which we've talked about a lot on this show over the last year or so. 
about the US and the UK preventing Ukraine from agreeing to a negotiated mm. end of the conflict early on, which we've also talked about a lot on the show. Like a lot of the points that Putin was making are valid. Uh, and, you know, we've gone over them in previous episodes. So I'm not going to like reiterate all of them, but the, the, key issue here is that the Western media, by and large, doesn't talk about them. If they do, they dismiss them in a couple of words as being nonsense and just move on. Like there's no real addressing of the issues in a serious way. And the two questions that I have, Tony, is one, why the lying by the media? Why the lying and the distortion? Why is it that the media needs to demonize our enemies and the Western journalists, and it's not just when it comes to uh, external enemies. This happens over and over with internal enemies. We've seen this with Julian Assange. We've mm -hmm. seen this with Glenn Greenwald. We've seen this with Matt Taibbi. These are you know journalists who, when they're writing stories that the left are in support of, they're considered heroes of the left when they're attacking the right. As soon as they write stories that are attacking the left, particularly the Democrats in the US, they're vilified not only by you know Democratic politicians, but all of the Democratic supporters and the media. They, they attack their own. They eat their young, uh, attack the journalists as being, you know, when Matt Taibbi was writing the uh, Twitter files stuff, he got absolutely attacked mercilessly by the rest of the media. Um, Greenwall gets it every time he, you know, says something negative about a democratic administration. Julian Assange, obviously, still in prison, and uh, they're trying to extradite him so he can serve 173 years in jail in the United States for revealing their crimes. And the second question, building on that, is, is how is it coordinated? How is it that all of the Western media, in this particular instance, seem to have the same script. How does that work? How is it coordinated? Like there's plenty of clips, I don't know if you've seen them on YouTube, where they do this with, say, Fox News, where they'll have, uh, you know, one reporter on one of the shows on Fox, uh, on not just on Fox News, but all the Fox stuff, making a statement about, you know, there's something wrong with the system. And then they'll just start adding clips of different Fox host saying the exact Ooh. same words, and it's just they're, they're often when it's talking about you know we're fair and balanced and giving you independent thinking, and it's just they're all reading from the same <laughs> script. So, and obviously, it's easy to understand how that happens inside of one outlet. But how does it happen right across countries, different media outlets? Some of them supposedly independent, like not government uh, or. or the ABC, whatever we call the ABC here, like it's a independent government-funded media company that's supposedly independent and and you know aspires to a high level of journalistic integrity, but they're singing from the same hymn sheet as Fox News and MSNBC and everybody else. I can't figure out really how that works if. It's coordinated, Probably. or it's just hey, mm -hmm. we're on this side of the we're on this side of the camp, so we're just gonna jump on board. Well, I think the answer is manifested. I think, um, I think lazy journalism plays a part. So, you know, if Tucker Carlson broadcasts an interview overnight, 
in Australian time, then there's probably going to be something on the wire, so on the Reuters or AAP or whoever else that these news outlets use, summarising it. And they oftentimes, it's, it's not the headline story for Australian news, so they'll just copy and paste paragraphs and put it into their their newspaper or in their teleprompter for the news. And then maybe a day or two later, realise they've got some of the things wrong, but it's, the news cycle's moved on then. So I think lazy journalism's a part. I, I don't think there's a coordinated effort. Apart from that, I mean, those those wire services go into every news outlet in the world. So there is a certain amount of similarity in, in what gets reported. The Reuters but, or an AAP feed that they're grabbing it from? Correct. Yeah, quickly. And, you know, having an editor shout at them that the deadline's looming and we have to put a story out about Putin. Um, I think there's a bit of that. I think there's also, unfortunately, these days, probably... Maybe it's always been the same, but it didn't feel that way when I was younger. There's more of it these days where it's an echo chamber. The media's the media outlets have drawn sides, which I think is also behind the attacks on Tucker Carlson. He's from the other side and he's an easy target, so we're going to focus on him. We're not of that side because our listeners, our readers want to hear something, you know, written about that's written about what they think. Um, and their their point of view is they're against the war in Ukraine, they're against Putin, and therefore against Putin, and they're against Fox News, and therefore Tucker Carlson, <clears throat> even though Tucker Carlson doesn't work for Fox News anymore. So there's there's that kind of mindset as well. The, the tribalism of the media is more exaggerated these days, I think, as well. Um, and then there's the political sphere of things too. The tribalism either bled from politics or it's bled into politics from the media, but the same sort of thing. I mean, uh, Media Bites, a show on the ABC here at 9.30 in Australia on a Monday night, regularly shows every morning news presenter across the commercial networks, across the ABC, saying the same thing, using the same phrase. <clears throat> so, you know, there's an element of, of um, it's quick journalism, it's coming from the same source, and occasionally they're putting their own slant on it to try and appeal to their audience and get them to keep listening and watching what mm. they say. Mm. I think you're probably right. Um, I think media outlets uh, know, uh, you know, it's an increasingly competitive media landscape and hard Ooh. to run a profitable media business. Um, there's been a number of articles I've read over the last month or so about all the major newspapers in the US, including the ones bought by billionaires like Jeff Bezos, are struggling to make money. They're, yeah. they're bleeding money and, uh, you know, smaller media outlets like Vice have shut down because they couldn't become or maintain profitable. Um, it's it's a tough time out there. So, that you know, there's business people well, what? knowing who their audience is. This is what our audience wants to hear. This is what our advertisers need to hear us say. So they'll continue to support it and you just toe the line. Yeah, I mean, I'd add to that that um, it was really the internet which killed journalism because when classified ads moved from newspapers to online and we had companies like Seek in Australia and um, realestate.com.au and Domain and they've got other examples around the world where home ads and job ads go online, then the newspapers lost what was called the rivers of gold mm -hmm. and they became unprofitable. And they started sacking journalists to try and um, cut costs to keep you know, keep things profitable. So there just isn't the staff anymore mm -hmm. to check. And coupled with, uh, as you say, ad advertisers who 
know that if they take out an ad in The Guardian, they're not going to sell many fridges, but if they take it out in The Telegraph, they're going to sell all the fridges. So then, you know, you get this sort of cycle of we'll advertise with you as long as you're engaging with the readers in the western suburbs who are all new homeowners and want to buy fridges. As soon as you lose that market, we'll take our ads and put it somewhere else. So it's mm-hmm. a, it is a real echo chamber. Or it's it's a simple, I mean, even if that conversation doesn't happen, it's like, give me your media kit. Who are your who are your customers? What are the demographics? Yeah. Okay, that's not our demographic. Sorry. If you want to yeah. appeal to us, you have to be appealing to that demographic. And that demographic and flip, is going to read you yeah. if they hear a certain kind of story. And the flip side applies too. Um, if if uh, The Guardian in Australia ran an article praising uh, Tucker Carlson, it would start to lose readership and yeah. it would start to lose advertisements. So, and they're, diff- they're just a different type of supplies of those ads in The Guardian. I mean, I haven't read The Guardian for a long time, but I imagine it's you know, ads for wind farms and alternative energy and things like that. And they're not going to um, they're not going to keep paying the price they pay now if The Guardian's readership goes down. Yeah. So it's it's basic economics which is driving the slant on the coverage for a lot of these stories. You know, it reminds me, when I first moved to Brisbane nearly, I don't know, 16 years ago this year, I guess, I was invited to, I think it was the University of Queensland, to speak as part of a panel to uh, an incoming bunch of uh, journalism students. This is about 2000 and eight would have been and middle of 2008 and they got to you know my turn it was and the other people on the panel were all like editors and you know whatever's uh real media real journalist sort of people and they were all like oh it's a very fine profession and it's uh you know it's congratulations <laughs> and blah, blah blah they got to me it's a bunch of these poor 18 year old kids and i said i just feel sorry for the lot of you because by the time you leave here there aren't going to be any jobs left in journalism <laughs> And they're like, oh, what? And 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 they were like having a go. And I said, look, it's just the economics, man. Like these journalism businesses are bleeding money, and it's not going to stop. The economics of the of the industry has fundamentally changed. You, 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 there aren't going to be any jobs. Yeah. And they, they all said that I was being hyperbolic, uh, <laughs> classic Cameron Riley hyperbole, and blah 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 blah. And you know, it played out and the way. Fight. You can't fight the economics, yeah. right? No, you can't fight economics. You're right. But I think also, too, around that time, I mean, I mean um, wind the clock back a bit further when I did intro journalism at Queensland Uni, and uh, I, I worked out pretty soon that, you know, from talking, but being in tutorials with editors from papers and, you know, lots of people would come and talk to the journalism classes almost every week to be a different editor or or someone coming along. They, you know, first of all, sport played a big part in, in journalism in Queensland. And secondly, it was a it was a club. It was a network. And they... The people who would, you know, that they were after were knockabout rugby types who could have a beer with anyone and get, you know, catch someone off guard and then do a gotcha type article. But there was two camps. There was those types of people, which was, I think, the the, the majority. And then there was the the, um, as you say, the honest, <clears throat> independent professionals like like Eleanor Taylor, um, who I knew at university. I think she now edits the Guardian, um, who does. Have have high journalistic standards, but but they're in the minority, and and they're in the minority because they the careers that that they started off in just weren't there for them in the end. And I think they've always been in the minority. And have you ever read Chomsky and Herman's Manufacturing Consent? Yeah, and seen the documentary. Hmm. So the model that they 
put forward, which was Herman's model. Um, Chomsky gives him credit for it. And they got it from an Australian guy. You ever read the Australian guy that they got that from? No. Herman got it from? Can't remember his name. He passed away quite young, sadly. Um, but he, he was, a, I think he was from Queensland, he wrote a book in the early 90s, um, which I've got somewhere. But he he basically broke down the model in the same way, and they and Herman right. and Chomsky reference him and um, give him credit for breaking it down. But he was basically saying that, you know, uh, and I, I think I talked about this a bit in our psychopath book, but that if you're when you're interviewing as a journalist to get inside of a media organization, they're looking for. Are you going to fit in? Are you going to be part yeah. of the team? Are you going to work well? Are you are you going to fit in with the culture of the organization? Mm -hmm. And they will weed out people that have views that are diametrically opposed to them politically. Uh, and if somebody sneaks through and uh, who has diametrically opposed uh, political views and it starts to show up in their writing, they'll be they'll be urged to get in line. And if they don't, they'll be put on the you know, a different beat, a sport beat or something that doesn't have a political leaning uh, or independent opportunity for independent thinking, or they'll get fired uh, or, you know, yeah. or conditions will be made so difficult for them to continue working there that they will pack their bag and go somewhere else. There are different filter mechanisms that have always been in place to weed out the undesirables. Um, and the, the the classic example, which happened just recently, was Antoinette Latouf at the ABC. Exactly. Which you might want to explain that story for our many international listeners. Yeah. So uh, she was a casual presenter who came in uh, to the ABC, which is our our national broadcaster, um, just on a short term contract, uh, and it was you know a light and breezy type type role, but. But she was uh, an Arab Australian who was um, pro-Palestine and uh, and and um, against the Israeli aggression in Gaza. And she lasted three days and then was um, sacked under pressure from a bunch of, uh, well, supposedly under pressure from a bunch of Jewish lawyers. I'm not sure if that actually happened, but that was alleged. Uh, but she was sacked by the ABC anyway because of um, uh, certainly a, a heightened media profile over her stance. Well, the I mean, there's, there was evidence that the um, Zionist lobby group of Jewish lawyers, et cetera, put, tried to put pressure on the ABC. Mm -hmm. The ABC then, coincidentally or not, fired her. <laughs> so, yes, it's not hard to draw the dots, even though the ABC denies that it had uh, any influence on it. Yeah, and I'll say it allegedly happened that way. But, but certainly the fact is she was, she was sacked after three days. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Putin's uh, claims about the history. So uh, early on in the interview, he says to Tucker, are we going to have a serious conversation or is this just going to be light, frothy <laughs> entertainment? Um, Tucker says, no, it's going to be serious. And Putin says, let me let me take 30 seconds to explain the history of Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> and he's obviously a fan of my podcasts because <laughs> half an hour later. podcast, yeah. <laughs> Half an hour later, he finally wrapped that up. But uh, mm. a lot of the criticism about Putin in the media when he does this stuff is about his version of the history of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, 
And I, I'll give you an example here. This is from the BBC, an article entitled Tucker Carlson Interview Fact-Checking Putin's Nonsense History. <laughs> and they say, Sergei Radchenko, historian at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, says the president's claim is a complete falsehood. Vladimir Putin is trying to construct a narrative backwards saying Russia as a state began its development in the ninth century. You could equally say that Ukraine as a state began its development in the ninth century exactly with the same kind of evidence and documents. So you you see a lot of this in um, the media coverage, sort of sweeping attacks on Putin's version of the history, but then they Mm. don't actually say what he got wrong. It's a complete falsehood. All right, what did he actually get wrong? They don't actually say what he got wrong. It's just, oh, it's just all nonsense. So not being an expert on the history of this part of the world, um, what I did was I took the transcript um, of the interview, took all of Putin's statements, and I put them into chat GPT. And I said, let me give you some quotes about the history of Russia and Ukraine and tell tell me if they're factually correct or not. So I threw it all into ChatGPT. And basically what it gave me back was, listen, this is factually correct. Um, the interpretation, though, of what this means is uh, it's a particular interpretation. Uh, and there, are, it could be debated. You know, there are other views, and you know, it's complicated state nation history, state history, very complicated and complex. And there are a lot of intertwining mm. factors, and you know, uh, different points of view that can be debated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But factually, it didn't really have um, any criticisms of. Uh, I mean, I, I sent you the 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 link to the chat. Did you? have a chance to read through that? I did. Yeah, I read the other links too from the BBC, et cetera, on what they were saying about about that too. Um, I, I guess, you know, let me preface my comments by saying I, I think there's a reason behind Putin spending half an hour at the start of the interview saying what he did. Sure. Um, it's And it was, I, I um, looked up, you know, the, the history as well, and I came across a Forbes magazine article, which I thought was um, interesting, where they went into... The, the fact that Putin had written an essay about this before the war and was basically regurgitating this in the first part of the interview. Which I've read. Um, yeah, but um, but uh, the essence of that, of the Forbes article, was that Putin wasn't speaking to Carlson. He was speaking to his own people. Sure. That, yeah, the, the Forbes article didn't call it propaganda, but that's probably what it was. It was Putin laying out his reasons for the war and tugging on the heartstrings of a particular demographic in Russia that you know, he thought would support it um, by going through the history of Ukraine, especially people who were older and and probably had memories from World War II. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why Putin did all that. I think the other reason he did it was it's not a bad ploy if you're being interviewed and you're not 100% sure that the interviewer is going to give you a good hearing. It's just to, to keep talking to keep pushing your point of view and just see if they push back and ask questions. And and Carlson didn't. So Putin just laid out his whole manifesto for invading Ukraine, um, and which was, you know, couched in the guise of history. So I think that's the first thing to say about it. Whether it's right or wrong, 
Putin was talking to a demographic in Russia. It was, it was essentially propaganda. And Carlson never picked him up. The other beautiful thing about that is because probably a lot of journalists didn't have two hours to listen to the whole interview, they focus on the first 10 minutes um, and criticize the history of it. But but as we both know, it's history is always open to interpretation. You know, I was trying to find analogies to it and you know, I sort of came up with two. One would be to say, if Australia invaded New Zealand on a justification that Captain Cook landed in both places, that you know, it's, it's a pretty weak justification for it. But on the other hand, if the Aboriginals say, you know, we want to take back Australia and we want to fight for it because we were invaded, that's probably a closer analogy to the sort of line that Putin was pushing that Ukraine was part of Russia historically, and it's you know through various events in history got separated and now it should be rejoined. So. You know, I, I get why he's pushing that argument, but it, but you're right. It's, it was weak journalism to focus on that and to try, and it was smart of Putin to pick a fight on that. Like, let the journalists debate history with him; they're not going to win. Well, yeah. Look, uh, in Tucker Carlson's preamble to airing the interview, he talked about the history lesson that Putin gave him, and that they he thought it was filibustering. He's just right. trying to use up the time. Um, but then he changed his view on that. I don't. I disagree that Putin was doing that for a Russian audience because Putin has no trouble communicating to a Russian audience in Russia. He he's in Russian media all the time. You know, he's written articles. He gives speeches. He doesn't need to tell this story to a Russian audience. The Russian audience that support Putin know this story and they know his views on it. Well, sure, but but this was the biggest story in Russian news. I mean, every every news outlet was trumpeting the fact that a Western journalist had come to Russia and and sat sat down with Putin for two hours and it had been a good interview. Mm. So it was getting a higher media profile. And the Russian audience he may have been targeting may not live in Russia. They may have maybe expats in the West as well. Okay, I, I I do think he's telling that story for international audiences as well. Mm-hmm. And, but. And here's my point is that whatever his reasons are for telling the story, the story's not incorrect. As far as I can tell, with the limited amount of time I've had to research it, <laughs> and also the fact that when I read the Western media criticisms of the history, they don't actually point out where he's wrong. They don't say this is factually incorrect or that is factually incorrect, look it up. They go well, yeah, but I could say that about this, or it's a or blanket statements like it's a complete falsehood, which it's obviously not. Now I've got a lot of time for Sergei Radchenko. Read a couple of his books. He's mm-hmm. written a lot of good books on, particularly the Cold War and the atomic bomb. Now he's a Russian-born academic, I think Canadian academic, um, Russian Canadian, but based at John Hopkins now, but. Um, it's obviously not a complete falsehood. Mm. So, again, I have this question in my head is, why can't academics or the media that are choosing which academics, and we know that they pick and choose who they're going to quote from, why do they have to lie about this? Why do they have to say, why can't they say, well, look, factually what he's saying is correct. However, his interpretation of it is biased. Why does it have to? Why do they have to say it's a complete <laughs> falsehood? I remember when um, the invasion first happened. I, I was on Facebook and I saw historian friends of mine um, in, in the US, 
saying the same thing, complete falsehoods, including one guy who comes from that part of the world, complete falsehoods, you know, Putin's fake history, blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, tell me exactly where he's wrong with the history. Mm. And then they just disappear and they don't come back to it. Like, he's not <laughs> – like, Putin's uh, – he's not an idiot. I love the fact that he said to Carlson, I believe your background is in history, right? Because Carlson's got his Bachelor of History. I was thinking, yeah, Ray's got a Bachelor of History too. I mean, they're not worth much in the US, apparently. Uh, <laughs> he uh, – but I'm pretty sure that Putin knows his history. He's not just yeah. making this stuff up. Like, he's he knows what he's talking about. He's he's a smart guy. He's very well, you know. And, and the other thing I always think is I'd love to see an American president sit down and give a hour-long lecture Ooh. on history. <laughs> Could you imagine Joe Biden Ooh. sitting down and giving an hour-long lecture on something that happened, like the history of a region of the world over 1,500 years? Well, you'd, you'd need a, like a sign language expert beside, beside him just going, no, 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 no. <laughs> just, yeah. it's, he, didn't mean the, he didn't mean the president of Mexico. He meant the president <laughs> of, of Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see John Stewart on The Daily Show last week? Covering that, uh, no. He was telling the story, and you know how the um, special prosecutor looking into Biden's garage documents said that he was a a well-meaning, oh, yeah. nice old man with a poor memory. <laughs> and then he had the bit where Biden got up uh, in front of the press corps to like dispute this, and then he he walked away from the podium, and John was like, "Yes, you nailed it." And then Putin starts to walk away, and then oh, sorry, Putin. Biden starts to walk away, <laughs> then he stops. And turns around and goes back to the party. But John's like, no, don't go back. Don't go back. And that's when he delivered uh, the president of Mexico right. line. Uh, <laughs> like he's like, let, let me do a let me do a one uh man play of what all of Biden's advisors were doing at this moment. It's just <laughs> them throwing their notepads and pulling their hair out and screaming. Uh, anyway, um, so again, the key point here is that. It, it, it's often interesting when I'm analyzing media stories about stuff like this to pay attention to what they're not saying mm -hmm. versus what they are saying. Again, it's if he is factually incorrect, if it is a complete falsehood, why aren't you telling me how it's factually incorrect? I mean, that would be the obvious thing to do. It's complete falsehood. For example, he made he made points one, two, three, four, five, and they're all and this is why they're incorrect. Right? When they mm. don't do that, my bullshit filter goes off. I'm like, hold on a second. You know, why, why, why aren't they telling me why it's wrong? This article goes on to say, Mr. Radchenko denies Mr. Putin's claims that Ukraine is not a real country because it was formed in its modern form in the 20th century. Now, Putin never said Ukraine is not a real country. Mm. Carlson said that. Yeah. But Putin never said that. So again, they're putting words in his mouth to make it seem like he's taking view. Now, what he did say is after World War II, Ukraine received, in addition to the lands that had belonged to Poland before the war, parts of the lands that had previously belonged to Hungary and Romania. Today, Western Ukraine, so Romania and Hungary, had some of their lands taken away and given to the Ukraine, and they still remain part of the Ukraine. So in this sense, we have every reason to affirm that Ukraine is an artificial state that was shaped at Stalin's will. 
Now, I don't think that's the same as saying Ukraine is not a real country. Yeah. Am I being unreasonable? No, no. Look, I agree with you 100%. Um, But again, I I think I'm kind of chomping at the bit to go past the history part of this interview because, uh, you know, I think... I think Putin's very smart, and he knows that a lot of journalists wouldn't get past the history part of the interview. And you can debate history until the cows come home, and and uh, you know he, neither side's really going to win. I agree with all your points about about the attacks being subjective and um, not focusing on the facts and just focusing on interpretation. But I'd much rather talk about some of the other things that Putin's talked about in the okay. in the interview. Well, yeah. let's, let's get to it then. What do you want to talk about? Well, I think all of the all of the things that um, he he spoke about that interest me were after that. So he he made a claim that Poland started World War II, which I thought was was interesting about the invasion of Poland and and how they invited Hitler to to come into Poland. Yeah, um, you know. So well, again, not, not a, no, not, not the, a historical they'd... subjective interpretation, but a, a quite a big one, I thought. I, I, he didn't say they invited him to come into Poland. I think he did. I'll try and find. I'll try and find the the, um, artic, the article if I can do it quickly. What he said from memory was that he called Poland a collaborator. He said they collaborated with the Nazis. Some historians have taken issue with that, and I think that's yeah. a, that's a fair thing. Like collaboration is a big word, but. What is factually correct is that when Hitler was um, when when the Munich Agreement was signed, which was going to give Germany some land in Czechoslovakia, Poland jumped on board and took land from Czechoslovakia as well when they were weak. They took advantage of Czechoslovakia's uh, weakness at the time to grab some territory. And then Hitler wanted some territory from Poland, the Danzig Corridor. Poland refused to give it up, and so Hitler invaded. Hmm. But they had been, in in Putin's words, they collaborated. Now, you know, you could pick that apart. Did they collaborate or did they just take advantage? Like the, the issue that I've read that historians have is that collaboration – suggests a joint strategic diplomatic agreement to attack a, a country in this instance. Um, did they have, were there diplomatic conversations between Nazi Germany and Poland? Yes. Um, is that collaboration? The way it's portrayed as well, Poland didn't have a lot of choice in the matter because Nazi Germany was this more powerful, aggressive country on the border, and so they had to go along with it. Wasn't really collaboration, and I'm like, mm, yeah, well, you know, you could say the same thing about the Munich Agreement. Um, you know, was Neville Chamberlain collaborating with Hitler when they agreed to the Munich Agreement, or was he just feeling like? They couldn't. They didn't want to have a war with Nazi Germany at the time, so appeasement was the better option. Is that collaboration? I think it maybe is. Yeah, maybe. So, so the, you're right about. I, I shouldn't have said that. Putin said Poland invited Hitler in. The quote is: In 1939, this is Putin speaking. After Poland cooperated with Hitler, it did collaborate with Hitler. You know, 
Hitler offered Poland peace and a treaty of friendship and alliance. We have all the relevant documents in the archives, demanding in return that Poland give back to Germany the so-called Danzig Corridor, which connected the bulk of Germany with East Prussia and Königsberg. Yeah, so the, 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 the claim was collaboration. Collaboration and cooperation. And again, like, he's not wrong from a particular point of view. You can argue what is the definition of collaboration and cooperation, mm-hmm. but they did. You know, they did cooperate. <laughs> they did take advantage of the situation. You can say, well, they didn't have much option, but, you know, so neither did the, the Vichy government in France have much option, mm-hmm. but we still criticised them as collaborators. I mean, mm-hmm. you can say no and get shot, but or you can collaborate and try and make the best of a bad situation, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Like, sorry. Yeah, go. No, I'm not disagreeing with you. I guess the reason for raising that is to talk about there seems to be the, the link between what happened in that part of Europe in World War II and what's happening in Ukraine and neo-Nazis. And that, that was a uh, kind of a key point that, that Putin's making. He was... He was saying that one of his reasons for invading Ukraine is a, is a denazification, or that's one of one of his requirements for a truce is the denazification of U, of Ukraine. Yeah, and I thought I still think that's very interesting, and and again I'm wondering whether he's he's playing to his audience at home on that one because I read a couple of articles. Um, uh, where was this one? Uh, NPR was a good one um, about about the issue in Ukraine. I won't read it out because it's quite long. But basically it says that, um, sure, there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine. It's about 2% of the population. There's the people who fought in the, I think it's called the Azov's Regiment mm-hmm. um, before the Ukraine war and during the Ukraine war. Mm. Uh, but they point out that 2% of the population who claim to be neo-Nazis is actually less than the, the situation in the US where there's far more ultra-right uh, members of the public than in Ukraine. So it's a fairly normal thing in a lot of Western countries, particularly in Europe, to have a sort of fringe neo-Nazi element. So why why do you think Putin is making a big deal of denazification, de- the denazification of Ukraine? I think I think this is um, part of you know his um, propaganda back to his home audience. Um, and I've always felt that this is the weakest of his arguments and his justifications. But what I also have seen happen in the last couple of years is how the Western media has absolutely tried to refute this argument that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine when, before February 2022, the Western media was regularly running stories about Nazis being a big problem in Ukraine. <laughs> and I've got an <laughs> archive of documents about this. Here's a quote from a Rolling, recent Rolling Stone article about the interview. It says, Putin spoke at length about his wish to bring denazification to Ukraine. And while the nation does have a dark history of association with Nazism and neo-Nazi factions, particularly in the context of World War II, experts widely agree this is a propaganda ploy used as a justification for the invasion. Except, um, you know, there are lots of uh, articles, as I said, that seem to think the West had a problem with the Nazis in Ukraine before the invasion. Mm. Here's a link to a Reuters article from um, 
the 7th of February 2024. It said, oh, hold on. No, that's on, uh, that's on Nord Stream. Let me um, get to the find. Yes, here we go. This is from The Guardian in 2014. Azov fired as a Ukraine's greatest weapon and maybe its greatest threat. And this is around about the time of the beginning of the Donbass mm-hmm. situation. The Guardian says, but there is an increasing worry that while the Azov and other volunteer battalions might be Ukraine's most potent and reliable force on the battlefield against the separatists, they also pose the most serious threat to the Ukrainian government and perhaps even the state when the conflict in the East is over. The Azov causes particular concern due to the far right, even neo-Nazi leanings of many of its members. The battalion's symbol is reminiscent of the Nazi wolf's angel, though the battalion claims it is in fact meant to be the letters N and I crossed over each other, standing for national idea. Many of its members have links with neo-Nazi groups, and even those who laughed off the idea that they are neo-Nazis did not give the most convincing denials. Fighters from the battalion told The Guardian last month they expected a new revolution in Ukraine that would bring a more decisive military leader to power in sentiments similar to those of many Azov fighters. Despite the desire of many in the Azov to bring violence to Kiev when the war in the east is over, the battalion receives funding and assistance from the governor of the Donetsk region, the oligarch Serhi Taruta. In 2018, the US declared... C-14 or S-14, the SISH uh, group uh, in Ukraine as a hate group. And I've got an article from Radio Liberty, which is a US uh, propaganda radio station in Europe, set up part of the Marshall Plan. Says Ivan Stupak, a former SBU employee, SBU being the Secret Service of the Ukraine, with 10 years of experience, said at certain stages, the SBU involved its operational contacts. That is, they found certain common points of view with leaders of C-14 and directed them to solve certain operational tasks. Um, And it goes on to talk about all the connections between government funding and secret service and the far right movement, et cetera, et cetera. So there's plenty of stories like that um, from before 2022 Western governments and the Western media definitely did see these Nazi groups in Ukraine as a significant issue. But post the 22 invasion, oh, it's all just propaganda mm. that Putin is mm. spinning. Now, I do think, as I said, it's his, probably his weakest argument. I think his strongest justification is for is the, Nazi, the NATO uh, enlargement. But, you know, I do think... He is being genuine when he says part of the conditions that they have is the elimination of neo-Nazis off the border between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, I, 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 you know, it, it's important for us outside of Russia to remember that the Nazis killed 20 million Russians in World War II and, you know, part of the breakup of Germany after World War II was to ensure that the Russians were never bothered by the Germans, the fascists again, fascists fascists obviously having a big hatred at the time for communists and Jews, uh, and particularly Jewish communists. Um, In Ukraine, it's more Catholic fascists that have been the problem. But, you know, he, 
it is a I think it's a genuine concern and I think it's a, a genuine issue whether or not it's as big a deal as he makes it out to be you know is well, debatable. Well actually I mean I highlight it because I think I think you're right I think it was a big deal and I think that there was certainly Russian speakers in Donbass who were chased out back into Russia by by uh, some element of that military slash neo Nazi um, power in the Donbass region. So I think it is actually an, an issue. Um, but it, but as you say, that's one of the things about the war that gets gets clouded. It's uh, the West has gone from it from acknowledging the existence of these people to saying it's propaganda by Putin. But I actually think it's a key issue for them, not just because of the history of fighting against the Nazis and and all of that, but because in the Donbass region, that's kind of borderland, there is a, I, I, can't, I can't speak to it being a, a neo-Nazi mentality, I'll call it a pro-Ukrainian mentality, and there's a Russian-affiliated population, and the two haven't mixed very well. And I think Putin probably is legitimate in asking for claims, whether it should be called denazification or not, it's another issue. The ABC had an article that I read, Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin interview, explained. It said, Russia's aim to denazify eastern Ukraine, a claim that has been described as propaganda by hundreds of historians who study genocide. I read that and I thought, what of historians who what do historians who have studied genocide have to do with his claims yeah. about Nazis in Ukraine? It seems like a non secateur, but I read um, this article again. This is um, from Radio Freedom. Facebook bans Ukrainian far-right group over hate speech, but getting rid of it isn't easy. And it said human rights groups such as Free... This is from 2019. Human rights groups such as Freedom House have warned that Azov's increasing visibility and impunity is a cause for concern. Far-right political forces present a real threat to the democratic development of Ukrainian society said a recent Freedom House report referring to Azov and similar groups. That threat is not due to political support. Polls show its political party, National Corps, is supported by less than 1% of Ukrainians, but because the far right is aggressively trying to impose their agenda on Ukrainian society, including by using force against those who oppose political and cultural views. Last month, a group of seven ambassadors in Kiev sent a letter to Ukrainian Interior Minister Arsen Avakov urging him to act against the groups, which it said threatened to disrupt the country's election and usurp the role of the Ukrainian National Police. The ambassadors asked the ministers to also consider outlawing the groups down the road. Would you be so kind as to outlaw Nazi groups? That'd be great. Thanks. So in 2019, mm. G7 yep. was writing a letter to the Ukrainian yep. government saying you've got to denazify your country. Now Correct. Putin says it, and everyone's like, "Ah, yeah. oh, what's he talking about? It's all crazy." Yeah, and look, and not just that, but like this NPR article uh, talks about, it's a harmful distortion and dilution of history. They say, talking about the um, Holocaust exports, experts, even though many people appear not to be buying it this time round. Laura Jakush, a professor of Holocaust studies at Brandeis University in Massachusetts, told NPR over email that Putin's claims about the Ukrainian army. Allegedly, allegedly perpetrating a genocide against Russians in the Donbass region are completely unfounded but politically useful to him. See, like, so... Were they there? <laughs> That's the first thing. But the other thing, too, is these articles always end with the point being made, and Zelensky is a Jew. Yeah. As if as if that kind of... You can just go, okay, well, we'll just wipe our hands of the Nazi problem in Ukraine. Then. 
which Putin himself said in the interview, and he said, and <laughs> Zelensky's father or grandfather fought the Nazis. He goes, why? I said to him, this is Putin saying, he said, I said to Zelensky, why aren't you getting rid of these guys? Like your own mm. father or grandfather mm. who always fought against these guys. Seems strange to me that you're allowing them in your country, but you know, what am I going to do kind of thing? Um, but like, I don't know, man. Like it just drives me nuts that Cameron Riley, with a couple of hours on his hands can look up the history of neo-Nazis in Ukraine <laughs> and there's all this stuff and yet the mainstream media seems to think they can just run this stuff and like there's just no sense of oh, well, maybe we should just tell the truth about this and you know and there's no fact checking right like you would think NPR which is the national public radio in the US <laughs> would have a more independent stance on things mm. Putin says that he needs to denazify Ukraine. They go straight to an academic who disagrees with that, and they publish the academic side. Now, whether this is meant to be balanced journalism, I've got Putin's argument on one hand and this academic's on the other. I'm not sure, but it doesn't. I found it very hard to get to the facts on this. You know, what is happening in the Donbass region? How many how many Russian speakers had fled across the border back into Russia? Mm. Was that a legitimate reason for Putin invading? And what's happening now? Why is there a Jewish president in, in Ukraine, but he's allowing the neo-Nazi Azos brigade to take a lead part in the war? They're really interesting questions. I don't have an opinion either way, but I'm not getting at the facts through the media. Well, you know that before Zelensky was the president of Ukraine, he played the president of Ukraine on television, yeah. <laughs> uh, which reminds me of, I don't know, just Ronald Reagan, Ronald or, Reagan? Donald, or Donald yeah. Trump, even to a certain extent. <laughs> Yeah, we also look. We've we've talked about this a lot on this show, Tony. But there, um, are you aware of the Victoria Newland phone call from 2014? You've heard. No, I've that? heard it on your show before. Yeah, yeah right. So there seems to be uh, that as evidence that, uh, among other things, like her talking in other interviews about how much money they spent on democracy in Ukraine mm. before the Maidan protests. It, it just fits the template, the CIA's template that they've been following since they overthrew Mossadegh in the early 50s in Iran for going into a country uh, behind the scenes, funding protest movements, activists, mm -hmm. uh, political troublemakers, saying, listen, do this, we'll, we'll have your back, you know, we'll, we'll give you air cover, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And if you win, we will support you know you and your chosen. Well, we'll tell you who to put in power, but we'll give you air cover. It just fits the model. And then when with that call was leaked, it just seems to be pretty strong evidence that that's what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, but I'm going to draw a longer bow, right? That that the if the CIA was going to fund anybody, it's more likely to be on the right than on the left, and. If if the if the military industrial complex in the states is funneling money towards fighting in the Ukraine, and the league group is the Azos group, and they have links to the neo Nazis, then you could also draw the line that America is happily funding them. So we're not finding out what's going on here, unfortunately. Well, the U.S. tends to support whoever's going to best serve their interests, Ooh. which makes sense whether they're on the left or the right, but usually it's on the right, as you say. Um, there's the famous, uh, <clears throat> what was her name? Jeannie, 
something begins with a letter F doctrine. Can't remember her name now. Fitzgibbons or something like that, Fitzsimmons. She was a strategic advisor uh, in the Reagan years, and basically her doctrine was, yeah, it's easier for us to do business with guys who are yeah. on the right than our guys on the left, right? You know, yeah. So they're usually going to be the ones we'll do business with. The other issue that all these articles take is about the outbreak of the conflict in Donbass in 2014, which they usually try and um, lay at the feet of Putin, make it sound like Putin invaded. But I always point to a RAND Corporation uh, um, article, investigation report on this. RAND Corporation being obviously a, an American um, think tank. When they did their report on it uh, 10 years ago, they said the conflict started as a local affair but was quickly supported by Russia, said a coterie of well-known local political agitators, businessmen, and members of fringe political organizations with a Russian imperialist bent led the effort. Moscow sought to foster this movement in Ukraine through oligarchic connections and intertwined circles of powerful regional business interests combined with local criminal elements the tactics appeared to be improvised, employing a diversity of individuals with little in common other than their opposition to Ukraine's new government. Russia fostered this subversion with a supporting cast of intelligence operatives, its own citizens, an informal network of fighters from the post-Soviet space, and local security forces who turned against Ukraine's government. So if the Americans were running their own secret operations to install a pro-American government in Ukraine... Russia had their own forces in there mm. to maintain a pro-Russian government, uh, and the two are fighting behind the scenes. But you know mm. what ended up happening is the Donbass breakout was genuinely, according to Rand, a civil war. It was a local affair with both sides, you know, having secret support from other major powers. Um, but it wasn't. Moscow marching an army in. Now, right. what the distinction is between the two, yeah. you know, there's another story. Yeah, no, but that's that's a good point too. We, we've, you know, we might sound, I might sound critical of the US on all this, but it happens on both sides. We're just calling it out because it's not reported. Yeah. I mean, we anyone who's spent any time studying Cold War history uh, knows that this is the way the Cold War has been played out. You know, it's uh, mm. uh, it's a, it's a, soft power it's hybrid warfare you're trying to influence the 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 media and the government and the businesses and the politicians in a country using bribery and influence and uh, promises and mm. all that kind of stuff and and all of the major powers if they can afford to do it do it i, I tend to subscribe to john mearsheimer's geopolitical realism camp that says that Major powers in any region um, know that if they're not the strongest power in the region, then they'll they're going to get attacked. They're going to be yeah. you know attacked by other stronger powers. It gets back to the dark forest hypothesis, kind yeah, of right. right. Yeah, that if if you're a power in a region and you think there's another power coming up that may be stronger than you, 
you kind of have an incentive to get in and hobble them or weaken them or take them over because if they become more mm-hmm. powerful than you in the future, then you're the victim. Mm-hmm. It's just political realism. And we're seeing right? it play out with Australia and the Pacific Islands at the moment too yeah. as Russia tries to ramp up its influence and Australia has to counter. So it Russia happens or in China? Every, uh, China, I'm sorry, China. Yeah. Uh, it happens in every sphere of influence, I agree. But we just don't read about it overtly. We try and put the try and connect the dots, but we don't read about it overtly. It doesn't get talked about in, you know, mainstream media mm. outlets. Like, okay, Mearsheimer does, but as Mearsheimer says, like increasingly, he and his colleagues uh, who push realism just are shut out of the media. I, I heard him being interviewed. I think it was on Lex Friedman's podcast a while back. And he was saying, like, even in the early 2000s when he and um, his colleague, whose name escapes me, wrote a book on the- Greenwald? Hmm? Was it Greenwald? No, no, no. Um, He's passed away, but he was a leading scholar. uh, Stephen Walt. When he and Stephen Walt wrote a book called The Israel Lobby, which I read 20-odd years ago, talking about the the influence that the Israel lobby has in US politics, uh, he said even though they got attacked right across the board, at least they were given airtime. You know, right. they were able, they were being interviewed in the New York Times mm. and they were on television mm. and that kind of stuff. He said, now no one will even right. talk to us uh, about, you know, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. It's like, he said, it's far more of a, closed down media ecosystem today than it was 20, 30 years ago in the United States. And that's uh, interesting, isn't it? That I mean, plays out across speaks, the West. And that speaks volumes though, doesn't it? If if the if a media outlets are playing cancel culture rather than saying, come and debate this with the Israel lobby, uh, it's not really journalism, is it? No, it's it's well, you know, I mean I don't, however you want to define journalism. Um, I got some other, yeah, criticisms here. I want to run through. So um, this is uh, from the BBC. Um, for fans who managed to stay tuned any longer, the reward was a rerun of Putin's top twisted arguments. Some neutral <laughs> journalism for you. <laughs> Um, they go on to say he aired his regular grievance about NATO expanding east into what Russia sees as its area of influence. We never agreed Ukraine could join NATO, as Putin put it, but it's having an aggressive, unpredictable neighbor like Russia that's led Ukraine to seek extra security. Not true. Uh, We know the history of this. Mm -hmm. We know that all of the polls in Ukraine said, uh, you know, going back 20, uh, 10, 20 years ago, showed that, that people had no interest in joining NATO. But then the coup happened and there was uh, a lot of investment by NATO in uh, Ukraine to build up like promotion for NATO, a lot of funding in there. And, of course, then they ended up with a pro-American government after the 2014 quote-unquote coup, <clears throat> if it in fact was a coup. Which and they've been pushed into joining NATO by various forces, but before that, Ukrainians had no interest in joining NATO. Hmm. Uh, it's, they say Putin has always characterized the mass public protests in Kiev a decade ago as part of a Western backed coup, which they were not, says the BBC. 
According to whom? Based on what evidence? (laughs) Mentioned Victoria Newland's phone call? No. Mm -hmm. And this is fucking BBC, man. Like, Mm. um, it's journalism. It's really, it's really editorial, isn't it? It's not journalism at all. Yeah, it's all editorial these days. Um, Yeah. New York Times: Tucker Carlson's lesson in the perils of giving airtime to an autocrat. Mr. Putin conducted a history lecture that provided a one-sided, often false narrative about Ukraine, says the New York Times. One-sided, yes. False, probably not. Hillary Clinton, in an interview this week with Alex Wagner of MSNBC, called uh, Carlson a useful idiot and Mr. Putin's puppy dog. Mr. Carlson gave Mr. Putin room for uninterrupted disquisitions a new word for me. What's a disquisition, Tony? You ever use that in a sense? No idea. No. On long-standing <laughs> and decidedly one-sided grievances about Ukraine's origins and independence movements set un- uninterrupted. He actually did interrupt him a number of times, Carlson, in that first half hour rant. He kept trying to interrupt him. And Putin was just like, just, just hold on. Let me let me finish my story. Yeah. And then he would 30 seconds going. more. 30 yeah. seconds more. He's <laughs> saying he was uninterrupted, but it's not. He Carlson tried to interrupt him on a number. And Carlson looked very confused and very yeah. troubled from the beginning of the yeah. whole thing. Like, where's uh, this going? I'd, I'd be inclined to agree with someone who said that Carlson softballed Putin. Softballed he, him, he, sure. But he, he tried tried to interrupt a couple of times, but mm-hmm. but once every 10 minutes isn't really, you know. But what are you going to do? Um, I mean, how are you going to say, look, just shut the fuck up, Mr. Putin, and and answer my questions? I mean, you're not going to get mm. anywhere with that. I don't think Putin's going to mm. let you run things. Although the well, funny I, I thing is- I must imagine- Sorry. I, I imagine that the, one of the conditions for the interview was that it couldn't be edited too. Otherwise, you know, uh, Carlson may have decided just to let it run and then cut it down for use, but it, he didn't do that. So I'm guessing that was a condition. Probably. And um, I was going to say that, you know, uh, since the interview, Putin has come out in Russian media and said that he, he found the interview disappointing and almost boring. Yeah. <laughs> Carlson's taking a victory lap. And yeah. Putin's like, I actually expected him to ask some hard questions. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was prepared for an aggressive interview and it was really not. So, so that's... <laughs> Yeah, I love no, that. Exactly. <laughs> Putin's, yeah. Even Putin's not giving him uh, any any props for it. And uh, Putin said a lot of interesting things. I mean, the whole there was a discussion. Well, there was a the point about Boris Johnson intervening in the in the peace talks. Yeah. That Ukraine were having with Russia. Yeah. I mean that 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 could have been a whole topic of interview in itself, but it just sort of sailed through. Yeah, and we've we've talked about that on this show. We we know that that's true. Um, we know that they were, you know, Zelensky and and Putin, uh, or their representatives were on the verge of signing an agreement early in 2022. Then Boris Johnson, when he was still prime minister, made a three day trip to Kiev, and then the deal was off. And basically, mm. Boris Johnson, in his own words, said that he told Zelensky not to surrender; that he had the full support. Of the West now, what else he said uh, about what would happen to Zelensky if he did surrender? Um, we don't know, but it's it's quite obvious that the war would have been over with within mm. a couple of months if the US and the UK hadn't decided to prolong it forever. Which reminds me a lot of the Afghanistan situation in the mm. late seventies, which I've done shows about. It was deliberately extended for 10 years by the United States 
in the words of Zbigniew Brzezinski, Car- um, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor uh, at the time, he w- later said that he went into Carter and said, if we play this right, we can give the Soviet Union its own Vietnam. And then he was quite proud of the fact that they did that later in life, um, that they managed to economically bog mm. down and cripple the Soviet Union by supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And this, to me, just looks like the same thing. They're using the Ukrainians as uh, fodder now to try and further weaken Russia economically. New York and to- potentially it's it's backfiring, though, on the U.S., I mean, they're they're the one who's bogged down in Congress with um, contention over paying so much for the war in in Ukraine. Yeah, but the guys in the US that got the money, it all played out perfectly, right? Oh, yeah, sure. I've always pictured it's a win-win situation for American businesses with this. If they win and they manage to keep control of Ukraine, then they get access to its markets. They get access to its its natural resources. They they get you know bases again, more bases on the border of Russia to further weaken Russia. I mean, what's up for grabs is all of the energy supply into mm-hmm. and grain. Europe, you know, and grain. Yeah, right. All of that, all of the economic supply that Russia has a big chunk of. If you're an American mm-hmm. business person with interests in Europe and in the Middle East, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you want to get access to those markets. If they so if they win the war, they get that or get to keep that or get more of that. If they lose the war, well, you know, we still got hundred billion dollars of uh yeah. American taxpayers' money over a few years, like happy days, right? It's a win win. Yeah. So there's no incentive to do the to do a negotiation, is there? A peace negotiation. Not if you're an American businessman or an American politician. Correct. Yeah. If you're a Ukrainian mm-hmm. soldier, maybe, or a Russian soldier. Um, another interesting thing in the New York Times is Putin threatens despair and hedging in Europe. It actually admits that Putin was complaining about NATO expansion back in 2007. It talks about this conference that just happened <clears throat> at the Hotel Bayeriska Hof. It says in the Hotel Bayeriska Hof, the conference stage where Mr. Putin warned in 2007 that NATO's eastern expansion was a threat to Russia. Mr. Navalny's widow made an emotional appearance on Friday, hours after her husband's death, reminding attendees that Mr. Putin would bear responsibility for it. Um, Leaving aside the Navalny stuff, uh, it's a rare admission in the Western media that the NATO expansion issue didn't just start getting invented by Putin in February 2022. You know, that normally in Western media just gets rejected outhand as being nonsense, got nothing to do with NATO, despite the fact that Putin and before him, um, you know, going back to Gorbachev and then um, who was the guy after Gorbachev? I've got a mental blank. Uh, Yeltsin. 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 Mm. All took issue with the NATO expansion when it started happening in 96 under Clinton. You know, they've been beating on about it for nearly 30 years. Stop the NATO expansion, stop the NATO expansion, stop the NATO expansion. Finally, they invade and they say, why are NATO expansion? What? That's that's got nothing to do with it. Never heard that before. Like, seriously? And again, the way the media just writes it off as, it's just nonsense. It's got nothing to do with NATO expansion. Like, it boggles them on. Really? Yeah. CBC 
Canadian broadcasters barely mentions Putin's actual talking points. Only after 30 paragraphs of criticizing Carlson did they get to anything that Putin had to say. <laughs> Putin, in the Russian interview where he said that the interview was disappointing, also said he'd rather have Biden continue as US president because he's predictable. Mm. Can you imagine if he'd said the opposite? how the Democrats would be losing their damn minds at the moment Ooh. if he said, oh, I'd rather have Trump as president. See, see, Trump's a Russian puppet. He said yes. Biden, and there's like crickets. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Biden's not a Putin puppet, yeah. No, I, I did see that one too. The other interesting thing I thought um, that was left slide by Carlson again was when Putin told his story about uh, going to Clinton and saying, uh, hey, let Russia join NATO, will you? And Clinton said, yeah, okay. And then came back that night and said, no, sorry, can't do it. My advisors told me I can't do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's well uh, documented as well that Russia tried to join NATO and just mm. got shut out. Um, you know, And this goes right back to um, Gorbachev. Gorbachev, plenty of interviews on record about this, when they were doing the whole collapsing of the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, the, the promise about no NATO and he agreed to the reunification, reunification of Germany. He was putting forward propositions that they form a new security, global security alliance that they could all be part of and, you know, was given nods and winks. Oh, sure, 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 we can do that. And then <laughs> just shut out. It just, you know, once the Americans felt that they had won the Cold War, they weren't giving up any play in anything. Politico called it a two-hour love-in. They mentioned the Russian president's fanciful history lesson. On the Nord Stream stuff, they said several countries have been publicly blamed for the explosions with varying degrees of evidence. Ukraine has said Russia was responsible, which the Kremlin has denied, while Moscow has previously blamed the UK without presenting any evidence to support that assertion either. They don't mention at all the uh, US... Uh, being involved. Cy mm -hmm. Seymour Hirsch, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist, said his sources said it was the CIA. They don't mention that. They don't mention that the US blamed Ukraine for it either. Um, just not worth mentioning, apparently. Um, there's, um, I mentioned that there's a Reuters article for the 7th of February. Uh, the Rolling Stone said um, something about. Uh, we're talking about the Nord Stream. The Rolling Stone magazine article said, investigations have yet to determine who was behind the sabotage. And then they linked to a Reuters article from the 7th of February. It says the White House last year dismissed a blog post by a US investigative journalist alleging Washington was behind explosions as utterly false and complete fiction. I was like, they fucking wrote off Seymour Hirsch a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who broke the My Lai story massacre in Vietnam, who broke the Abu Ghraib torture story 20 years ago as a blog post by a US investigative journalist. Like, it makes it sound like it's some hack conspiracy, yeah. like it's me sitting in my bedroom writing yeah. about it, you know? Fucking Seymour yeah. Hirsch, they just mm. write off. Like, like seriously. This because guy's they can, because none of the none of the none of the outlets in the America America picked that up. You'd no. think the first thing that the head of the Washington Post would do is say, "Oh, who's this journalist? Let's let's go and talk to them. Let's see what their sources are. Let's let's you know try and replicate the work that they did." 
or the New York Times oh. where he won a yeah. Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, we'll just take the press release from Washington and, re- and print that. Like I've, you know, I read Seymour Hersh's blog, um, and he's, you know, been saying for uh, whatever it's been now six months since he wrote that story. You can tell by the lack of coverage that my story is right. getting. It is accurate. How close to the bone <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. If it was wrong, and they knew it was wrong, they would come out and say that. The fact that they are, you know, tackling what's actually being said in it um, stands for itself. They go on, sorry, in the Reuters article to say the US and German media have reported that the yacht could have been used by Ukrainian or pro-Ukrainian groups citing leaked intelligence reports and people familiar with official investigations. Kiev has repeatedly denied any involvement. The Washington Post citing leaked information posted online wrote last June that the United States learned of a Ukrainian plan to attack the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines three months before they were damaged. So, of course, what happened is when Seymour Hearst came out with his story, the uh, Washington Post slash U.S. government came out with their own yeah. story. Oh, no, well, we mm-hmm. heard that it was probably yeah. Ukraine Our sources say. that did it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it just goes on. Like, um, the, the amount of obfuscation. The other thing that I wanted to point out that, Putin talked about a lot that didn't get any coverage in any of the articles that I saw was the role that the failure of the Minsk agreements played. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to highlight that too. What What did you have on that? No, no, go ahead. I've, I've got to find my notes. Well, for people who are first-time listeners, um, I, I, when the whole thing broke out in the Donbass region in 2014, there were a number of attempts to try and bring about a peace settlement there. They were called the Minsk Agreements because the meetings happened in in Minsk in Belarus. Um, And it looked like they had a a template for some sort of a settlement in the Donbass region. And again, it just failed. And aspersions were cast around as to who failed and why they failed and who was to blame for not upholding their end of the agreement, a bit like the whole, you know, Palestine-Israel thing that's been going on forever. Each side blames the other. But um, Putin puts the blame on the failure of the Minsk agreements on Ukraine and the West for not upholding their end of it. And there is there's a, uh, um, a fascinating interview with Angela Merkel, who was one of the sponsors of the agreement when she was the Chancellor of Germany, she was interviewed by a German magazine, Zeit, uh, recently, where she said that the Minsk agreements had been an attempt to give Ukraine time to defend itself. Hmm. She said, um, well, Putin said, it turns out that no one was going to fulfill all these Minsk agreements, and the point was only to pump up Ukraine with weapons and prepare it for hostilities. So then I got this from um Reuters, uh, I think, according to uh, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, the Minsk agreement served to buy time to rearm Ukraine. I've got the actual interview here from Desite. It says, this is quoting Merkel, but that requires us to also say what exactly the alternatives were at the time. I thought the initiation of NATO accession by Ukraine and Georgia, which was discussed in 2008, was wrong. The countries neither had the necessary prerequisites for this, nor had the consequences of such a decision been fully thought through. 
both with regard to Russia's actions against Georgia and Ukraine and to NATO and its assistance rules. And the 2014 Minsk agreement was an attempt to give Ukraine time. The aim was to gain time through a ceasefire in order to later achieve peace between Russia and Ukraine. She also used this time to become stronger, as you can see today. The Ukraine of 2014-15 is not the Ukraine of today. As we saw in the battle for Dobolsev, railway town in Donbass, at the beginning of 2015, Putin could have easily overrun them back then. And I very much doubt that the NATO countries could have done as much back then as they do now to help Ukraine. So, um, yeah, basically, she seems to be confirming Putin's assertion that the Minsk agreements were really just uh, an attempt by the West to buy time to, you know, rearm um, Ukraine and build them up so they could basically uh, not sign a peace agreement with Russia. Well, and also, I think, um, as Putin alluded to, the Minsk agreement never really held. There was always ongoing breakouts of fighting over that time as well. And, and you know, basically he was saying he couldn't trust the signatories to the Minsk agreement. Particularly when, you know, one of the key sponsors of it comes out and says, we were just using it to buy time in the first place. It wasn't, wasn't serious. Yeah, and it wasn't just Merkel. It was the um, other German uh, leader before her, I think. I'm just trying to find his name. Uh, Steinman? Anyway, one of the, one of the uh, key negotiators in, of, of that time might not have been a Sorry, she, he might not have been uh, Merkel's equivalent, but certainly someone high up in Germany mm. also came out and said it wasn't working. Yeah. Just trying to find his name now. And uh, Yeah, sorry. Well, and the thing is, I guess my point was going to be, A, this doesn't get talked about in the Western media, you know, the fact that the Minsk agreements were just a furphy. Secondly, um, again, Putin's no dummy. Whatever you think of Putin, if he's the embodiment of all that is evil or not, he's no dummy. And if and if he knows that the peace agreements or the, the, the attempts in good faith to negotiate a settlement in the Donbass region were just a ploy used by the West to buy time to so they could arm and fund and you know start building bases and putting weapons on the border of Russia. What do you do? Like, this is a question I've always Ooh. asked about this. If if you're Putin, what do you do? What are your options? If you've spent 30 years trying to reach a diplomatic negotiation Correct. about NATO expansion that has just been ignored, and, and, and again, this didn't come up. I'm surprised it didn't come up. Carlson asked him when the last time he spoke to Biden was, and Putin just sort of like, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. I can't remember everything. I know. It was just – it was January 2022 – they discussed, well, Putin tried to discuss um, Ukraine joining NATO, and Biden told him it wasn't open to discussion, it was off the table. It's, I mean, I know you've done a, a long history podcast on Napoleon, but it's very Napoleonic, this. Putin's saying, I have tried to defend my border, to defend my country, to keep my people safe, but you keep attacking. I've signed Minsk One and Minsk Two. And for 10 years, we've had clashes on the border still after I withdrew. What more do I have to do? Yeah. How, how, how can you say I'm the aggressor if I then 
you know, cross the border with my tanks trying to protect my border. That's the thing that infuriates me with David Markham. I mean, if you talk about why Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, David will give you all the arguments where he tried. He tried diplomatic measures to avoid war, but he realized, because he was no dummy, what was going on. They were building up forces on his border and war was coming. So rather than the war happened on his territory, he took it to their territory. And it's, uh, you know, you, you would say that that's a, a just action. I mean, war is bad, but when you when your enemy is building up forces on their border and you believe Ooh. that they have malicious intent. You know, and you've had 10 years of a history of a broken treaty when you've tried to resolve it peacefully. And 30 years in this case of them saying, don't put NATO, you promised you wouldn't get to put mm. NATO bases on our border. And they're <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. We'll do whatever we want. Mm. What do you do? That's always mm. been my question. Do you just like politically, if he just sits there and lets it happen, he's not going to survive, mm -hmm. let alone, you know, for the, the economic and military security of the Russian people. He needs to act. Man, I'm not justifying his invasion, I'm just saying that from his perspective, I felt like he he really had no option. It was, okay, mm. we've tried everything else. It's failed. What, you know, a, a, as von Clausewitz said, to paraphrase, war is the extension of diplomacy by other means, right? When mm. diplomacy is getting you nowhere. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and you made the point before about Putin being a smart man. I, I thought that was clearly on show <clears throat> with the issue of Gershkovich when Carlson thought he'd be able to take a trophy home from Russia <clears throat> and have an American uh, released. And Putin was all over it straight away with all the facts. Mm. You know, we're working on this. There's discussions going on. Uh, there might be a prisoner exchange. We have a mind this guy, you know, who, uh, who was captured by the Americans after he assassinated, uh, uh, what was the... Um, Oh, I've forgotten the name of the place now, but anyway, the Chech it wasn't a Chechen. Chechen, thank you, yeah. the Chechen, the Chechen rebel. Yeah. yeah, but but that was to me that was Putin just completely and just had all the facts at his mm. fingertips. wasn't going to be gotcha'd, mm. just laid it all out off the cuff. Brilliant. And the thing that always gets me about uh, I don't know if you, did you ever watch the Oliver Stone interviews with Putin? No, I haven't. Going back a few years, but it was like four hours of interviews. Um, late 2017, 18, something like that. The thing that always gets me, and this is what Oliver Stone said, because Oliver Stone, you know, he did the same thing with Castro. He did the same thing with Chavez in Venezuela. He, like, he said, those guys are big personalities and grand pronouncements and obviously also both very intelligent, very successful leaders of their country, depending on how you want to measure success, I guess. Um, and Putin is the complete opposite to those guys. The thing that always fascinates me about these Putin interviews is he's very quietly spoken. He doesn't rock up wearing a uniform, you know, military mm -hmm. badges and mm. everything. Um, you know, Castro always just wore basic greens. You know, you never saw Castro with military um, adornments mm -hmm. like a Gaddafi. He was just, you know, military greens because he said, we're at war and I'm a soldier. So, uh, you know, I come dressed as a soldier. But Putin's just very quietly spoken. Very matter of fact. Very look. Here are the facts. You know, I'm laying the facts before you. Reminds me a lot, actually, of Assad in Syria. If you've ever seen interviews with him, very, very similar. 
I'm not going to compare the two guys because I don't think Assad is anywhere near what Putin is in terms of, you know, intellectual power. But very, very simple, uh, you know, in interviews, very quietly spoken, very matter of fact. Here's the facts as we see them. Putin exudes this quiet intellectual confidence about his position, what his facts are. He's always very respectful too when like when, when same with Oliver Stone interviews when Carlson was saying, well, what what happened in this conversation? What happened in this meeting with Biden or with these leaders or with the he goes, look, it's not my place. It would be it would be not right for me to talk about things that were said in private. If you want to know what your president said, go ask your president. If you want to know what Bill Clinton said, go. If you want, yeah, Carl's like, what do you think happened with Bill Clinton? He goes, it wouldn't be right for me to you know speculate. Mm. Go talk to Bill Clinton. Like he's always he's not advancing conspiracy theories. He's not mm-hmm. advancing agendas. He's just like it's not for me to say. I know what I know, but you know, it, it's. The depiction of him in the Western media as this Bond villain doesn't come across to me in these interviews. Like, does he have people assassinated? I don't know. Quite possibly. Do American presidents have people assassinated? Yeah, absolutely, all the time. Does he arrest journalists? Sure. Is Julian Assange in prison because of the US? Sure. I mean, he does what he does, and they talk about that. Like, as a Christian leader, you have to kill people. Like, how do you you justify that, right? Um, well, I think you've raised the last point I wanted to talk about, and that was the timing of the interview. And and I, I, I've not, I don't want to sound like any sort of Putin apologist for a minute, um, apart from saying that he's a smart guy and he doesn't get a fair shot in the media. But what did you make of the Navalny death around the soon after this interview was put to air? It was the interview, the bright shiny object to distract from something going on. Look, um, well, first of all, I'm not convinced that, you know, there's any evidence that they, like, deliberately assassinated him. People die all the time. People die in prisons all the time. Um, Especially in sub-zero Arctic. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Concentration camps, yeah. But reports are that, like, the day or a couple of days before Navalny died, he appeared in court and he seemed to be healthy, and unlike Julian Assange, who apparently is too sick to appear in court. Um, but you know, again, I I don't think Putin would try and time anything like this because I don't think he really gives a rat's ass. I don't mm. think he cares what the Western media says. I don't think he cares what Western governments say. I think he's a like a bit like MBF in Saudi Arabia having Khashoggi hacked to death with a an axe in a bathtub. He doesn't care. Like, say what you want. I mean, you think I'm a bad guy? Yeah, okay. I killed one of my enemies. Who cares? What are you going to do? Not buy my oil? Like, shut the fuck up. I don't care. I think I don't think Putin really cares about bright, shiny objects. I don't think he cares what the Americans think. I, don't, I do think he wants to finish the war in Ukraine, and in order to do that, he needs the US and the EU to stop funneling weapons into Ukraine. I don't think he wants a war there. Uh, um, whether or not the Navalny thing was timed with the upcoming Russian election and the interview, mm. look, I, I, I don't think it matters. I don't, I don't think Navalny was going to cause any problems in the Russian election. I'm pretty sure Putin's got that stitched up. 
by means fair or foul. I, you know, he is extremely popular. That's the other thing the media never talk about here. All of the all of the surveys that get done by credible Western uh, polling organizations say that he's incredibly popular in Russia. Maybe because he gets all the pro-Russian propaganda from the media, or maybe just because, you know, look at Russia before him under Yeltsin. It was a basket case. Whatever else you want to say about him, like Hitler taking over Germany, he's made the country stronger. He's made the country, in many ways, more economically viable, stronger, better standard of living. Is it perfect? No, but as he talks about in the in the the Oliver Stone interviews, it was a basket case when he took over twenty years ago. It takes a long time to. Not just rebuilding from the Soviet era, but then rebuilding from when the Americans went in uh, under Yeltsin, Clinton sent his American strategists in and they just sold everything off to the oligarchs. (laughs) You know, Putin's been trying to, you know, rebuild the country and it takes time. It's a hard, it's a hard slog, particularly when you're facing all the other things that they're facing with Western imperialism and all that kind of stuff in their region. So no, I, I, look, I, I don't know whether or not he was behind Navalny's death. I, I don't know, uh, you know. And and every time anyone dies, Putin apparently personally signed the order. I don't know that that necessarily needs to be the case. There's probably a lot of people between Putin and the guy that, mm-hmm. um, you know, commits the act that that are making de- decisions for themselves. I don't think the president of the United States personally authorizes everybody that every CIA operative assassinates. You know? I don't mm. know. What do you think? No, I, I was just raising the question. I, I, if My personal opinion is I think Navalny just died of, of, I'll call it natural causes. He's in a subarctic, what's it called, the polar bear or something facility, um, which is basically a death camp, and it just happened to coincide. But I guess that raises the... Um, you know, the other issue for me is that it was a Western pylon again when Navalny died, that it was caused by Putin. Um, that, you know, see, he may have said some smart things during the interview, but this is what he's really all about. This is what he does. So it's, um, and I, and, you know, I don't for a minute think that if Putin didn't do it, that he's capable of doing it. So, sure. Yeah. He's, he's ex KGB, like, uh, and he's the leader yeah. of a country. Like, he's capable of doing yeah. anything that he thinks is in the best interest of his country, I'm sure. Yeah, but it also raises for me the bigger question of um, of methods of government, and and that could be behind some of the you know the slants of the media is like you know do 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 I, do I think do, do I think that Western democracy is the best form of government? Well, you just have to look at all the leaders we've had in the last fifteen twenty years, or is a benevolent dictator a better form of government? Um, even though that there are downsides to that if you're in, in opposition. Um, so I think that's an interesting question to, to talk about as well. Well, the, the irony there is that the West loves Lee Kuan Yew. The West couldn't get en- yeah. enough of Lee Kuan Yew. And he was a benevolent dictator, as you say. And their system of government was very much like the Chinese system of government. And mm-hmm. who, you know, if you believe the books that I've been reading, basically studied Sing- Singapore's mm-hmm. form of government under Lee Kuan Yew and said, yeah, we want we want to have that. You know, we want to be like that. Let's let's find the best and the brightest and give them positions of political power rather than just somebody who's able to manipulate the electorate to vote for them. That doesn't make any sense. Let's find the best and the brightest. 
Yeah, well, the best and the brightest do run power in the West. It's just that they do it to line their pockets. It's a little bit different. You think Trump is the best and the brightest? No, I think Trump's the mouthpiece. He's the Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. The best and the brightest are on Wall Street. Steve Bannon? Oh, Wall Street. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all I got, TK. Okay. Thanks for yeah, joining so me. That was a good chat. Interesting discussion. Yeah. Thank you. Longer than we normally get to talk about these things at the end of QAV. It is. Yeah. Mm. This could be the first of our after hours. Could be. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, TK. Bye. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Where would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free. Your vote counts. Business is honest, the good guys win. The police are on your side. God is watching you. Your standard of living will never decline. And everything is going to be just fine.